0: And now coming to you live from our coast-to-coast trading desk, this is Moby.co Live, a weekly podcast recorded live in front of our Discord audience where we discuss the stock market, the economy, and the mechanics that move the market around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Star Northrop, bringing you today a mixed bag show. We're going to be talking about all the volatility coming from the Omicron variant, as well as some updates from Salesforce stock, as well as some updates from the Chinese EV market and kind of a grab bag of audience questions as we roll through. Well, with all that out of the way, though, I'm al- as always, I'm joined by Justin Kramer, co-founder of Moby.co and our lead analyst here justin man what's good what's life like on the east coast
1: Good so far in sunny florida so can't complain um nice spending the winters here um do not miss new york at all but uh so far so good how about you
0: it's go, You know, it's going great. Um, California is the foggiest it's like ever been, apparently. So everyone here is complaining. And I'm like, oh, wow, it's just being it's back in Philly for me. It's it rocks. My favorite thing about you is that you chose to simultaneously start a business and retire in like the same like three month period. <laughs> um, I just I-, I love you. I love you being super efficient. You're just cramming it all together. Either way, man. So again, we're here. It's market close um, here on Thursday. The week's almost over. It has been Just the most ping pongiest week. The market is down, the market is up, the market is down, the market is up. And it's largely been driven by this Omicron variant, um, a new variant of the coronavirus, which I will get into with my biology degree momentarily. But first, let's talk about the volatility at first. Like, looking at just this week of the market having a panic attack about this, and then... Completely recovering and then re-panicking and completely recovering. What do you make of this volatility? How does it compare to other moments of market volatility? Obviously, the first time that COVID came out, we had a complete crash and no real recovery until like the end of 2020. This is this just seems like the market reacting like a wounded animal, right? Like how do you how do you parse that and how do you as a long-term investor think about that, Justin?
1: Yeah, uh, it's interesting because with extreme events, you always see not always, but most of the time, see pretty heavy periods of volatility, both before it and then surrounding it and then after it as well. So seeing these complete up days, these complete down days as people react to the news in real time is not surprising by any means. And obviously, we're not in a position to say what will happen with this variant uh, today, tomorrow, you know, in six months from now. Um, But unlike Delta and unlike the variants that have come before it, there's, there's countries shutting downs. Um, there's there's parts, parts of even the U.S. looking to potentially re-enter shutdowns. I know in New York right now, they are looking to potentially implement a indoor mask policy again. So this is definitely not being taken lightly. And then that's why it translates over to the uh, to the markets in terms of the volatility. You saw Moderna um, spike, you saw Zoom spike, and you saw it come back down. And so Long story short, we're going to have this heightened period of volatility until more news over the next few weeks comes out. Um, But a lot of the companies that we have been and continue to be investing in, regardless of how this shakes out um, in the long term, we still fundamentally believe in. So for the things that we've recommended, the things we continue to recommend, we're not letting this really get in the way unless there's some sort of fundamental news that comes out that just completely shakes the industry.
0: Exactly. And I think one thing to keep in mind, too, is just how weirdly unprecedented Omicron is compared to other coronavirus variants. You had the Alpha variant, which is the first one that locked down the world in March of 2020. And the other one you've heard the most about is Delta, which is slightly more infectious, but slightly less deadly than the initial Alpha variant. And now Omicron's here, and it's the weirdest possible mutation because... Delta evolved from alpha, right? Um, Omicron came out of literally nowhere. It's actually evolved from like, uh, it's almost you'd, almost, you'd almost call it a completely new virus, the way the, the way the mutations have happened. And the way it's playing out right now is current preliminary data suggesting that A, um, it might be more infectious than Delta, but again, no one can know that for another two weeks. There's literally not enough epidemiological data to suggest what it can do. B, um, it appears to be milder than anything else. And C, um, the mutations are such that it's kind of weird how it interacts with various vaccines. Um, It has more mutations on the surface of that spike protein than any other coronavirus ever has. And that kind of means that it can either A, be worse at infecting humans and then if it's all if it's that case it also would not react well to vaccines either so you have three real scenarios coming out of this when you look at how just bizarre this is scenario one uh it just doesn't infect people that well like your preliminary data is just everyone discovering the sequence and you know reporting it and people overreacting to it and it just happens to kind of fizzle out Uh, Scenario two, it is this weird scenario where it mildly infects a lot more people, um, in which case uh, you wouldn't see like lockdowns, you know, hit so much. Um, You would see just potentially it evolved into something worse potentially but right now no real suggestion of that and then scenario three it's simultaneous it, all the data is wrong and it's simultaneously more infectious and worse in which case you would see lockdowns the key here and the reason you're seeing the market bounce up and down is that's way too soon to say what Omicron's going to be the number one thing it is right now is hella weird by comparison just just the number of mutations so keep that in mind as you move through there needs to be a lot more data when people think about this which is why the the market is reacting so strongly in both directions because you're going to get really good news one day really bad news the next day until we hit a trend line. So it's going to it's gonna bounce around a lot. But getting out of that, getting out of that, when you think about that, our goal here at Moby.co, right, Justin, is we're, we're long-term investors. So this is just noise. Like this is, we fundamentally believe in all of these companies. Most of the, mo- almost all of the companies that we've recommended will not get hit by short-term uh, volatility like this and will not be long-term damaged by this. The main thing to keep keep in mind is if there is a huge lockdown that affects supply chains again, but that remains to be seen. Either way, we kind of get into the rest of the economy. So let's get out of the noise and get into the signal. And speaking of which, what I really love is how when we think long-term, we tend to go against the market sometimes, against you know popular sentiment. And that long-term perspective has been proven really accurate sometimes. Chief among them this week, uh, Justin, you... In your analysis for the week ahead, this week you predicted that Salesforce might not be the the best buy right now. It might you know it's either a hold or a sell. And uh, lo and behold, after Salesforce had earnings, their their earnings weren't as strong. The market still really isn't buying the Slack acquisition, and there's been a pretty significant dip in Salesforce. So take me through that. A, what is it like being you know a soothsayer? And then B, um, take me through like the fundamentals when you're thinking about like I- I- is this like a temporary dip for Salesforce? Um, is it just Salesforce just need to do a little bit more work to show the world that the Slack acquisition was a good idea, or is it one of those things that they might be systemic, it might be you know, time to look for better opportunities from your perspective?
1: For uh, From my perspective, it's really interesting right now because exactly to your point, the market did not react well initially to the news that came out of Salesforce. And so kind of going into it ahead of time, the, the analysts here and myself, kind of looked at their growth over the last few years, how well the acquisition has actually realized the synergies that they set out to do. And kind of what we've seen was an amalgamation of like just kind of underperformance in a sense, in terms of not delivering on expectations and underperforming what growth expectations would be for least for from our perspective. And so going into the earnings call, you know, based on the data we had and people we talked to the industry experts in the field, it seemed like this was a logical outcome. And so fortunately, we were right. Um, but going forward, you know, it, it really does peg the question for us. Is this going to be something, to your point, is this a systemic thing or is this just a one-off? And for us, I think the answer is really too hard to, to definitively say in either direction. I think we're going to need maybe a quarter of two more data to, to see if this is kind of, this is a, an overreaction, but the downfall of Salesforce or is this just going to be a little bit of a a blip on the radar and go away? And so right now, I'm tempted to say it's more a blip on the radar. But I think Salesforce, and we've seen this with other tech companies in the past, they're entering a period where like growth or this intense hyper growth is just not sustainable. And so they've definitely pared back in in recent years in terms of their stock performance as well as their revenue growth. And so I think from that perspective, they'll they'll continue to Uh, to not grow relative to or grow as fast relative to some of the other tech companies out there. And so it makes them a less, you know, return heavy pick, but it also does come with significantly less, less risk than, you know, investing in a company like Roblox or Spotify. So long story short, I think they're in a period where they're not going to be growing nearly as fast anymore, but I don't think that they're in the long run going to be having like this immense pullback where they're, you know, looking at like an ibm type situation where they're just so behind when they when you know, when they should be ahead so we'll see on the long term what happens after a few more quarters um but you know i still think that they're a very solid company i just didn't like what what the the projections were coming into this earnings report um and kind of the the amount of money they spent on the stock acquisition
0: And I get get that completely. And it's one of those things where I think one major question our audience has as they think about this is the idea of, okay, I understand that Salesforce is a tech company. Largely, it's kind of the everything company within SaaS. Like if you you want to be a SaaS company, your model is Salesforce. And then you look at uh, the common knowledge around inflation. Um, and as inflation becomes, air quotes, less and less transitory, as Jerome Powell keeps, you know, uh, making us think more and more inflationary, right? Uh, the main question people have is: well, Is Salesforce the kind of company that can get affected by inflationary pressure, or is the revenue such that, like, inflation's not a big deal for them since they're actually making money right now? Like, how do you parse that? Is, is Salesforce within the category of companies that can see get have their breaks be pumped by inflationary pressure, or is that people not really thinking, not not really understanding the difference between a tech stock and a growth stock
1: no i mean listen every single company for the most part whether it's positive or negative is going to be impacted by inflation in some capacity so in that realm no they're not like uh, you know they're they're not immune to to any inflationary pressures having said that from when you take a look at a valuation perspective and we've kind of described as before for, and I apologize if this is you know repeat for anyone, but when you think about a company's valuation, you think about it in terms of tomorrow's dollars. Often, what is going to happen one quarter, two quarters, one year, two year, ten years out, and then you discount it back today to figure out how much a stock should be worth. It's just like investing one on one, and it's called the concept is time value of money. And so when you have these really high periods of inflation, high inflation leads to ultimately raising interest rates, and higher interest rates leads to a higher discount rate. So for so many stock companies or for, sorry, for so many growth companies, that future cash flow is what everyone's betting on. And so when you discount it back to today's dollars with higher interest rates, that's when you start getting in a position where the stocks potentially are just not worth as much. And so Salesforce, when you start looking at it from that perspective, Salesforce is not going to be nearly affected as the way a company like Zoom um, or a company like Roblox would be, because those cash flows are going to be expected a lot sooner and a lot more predictably than a company like Roblox will where everything is 5, 10, 15 years away. So will they be hurt by rising inflation rising rates? Yes, Will they be hurt to the extent that Roblox and some of these higher higher growth names are? No, that's just that's how we're looking at valuations relative um, to each other kind of from a growth perspective.
0: Precisely. I think that's a really good way of like thinking about it as you kind of imagine uh, the too soon to call nature of this Salesforce dip—is it a buy the dip? Is it the beginning of a huge pullback? There's a lot of reason. There's a lot of like reasons for both, so that's why it's more of like a hold scenario rather than like a uh, let's get out now type scenario. But let's get into you know rather than like you know patting ourselves on the back and thinking about sort of the more negative aspects of the market, let's look at the places where the economy is still really growing. And of course, one of those major areas of excitement is EVs. Uh, today, uh, Tesla um, tr- announced that they were trying to get the US government to pull back on tariff restrictions from China because they need more graphite for their batteries, which is my segue. And of course, Tesla's kind of down 1%, potentially on that news, just potentially on like, you know, the whole COVID scenario. Um, And that brings me to the strength of Chinese EV companies because that's just a huge growth area right now. And the major advantage Chinese EV companies have is they don't have to ship things from China to the US. They have the graphite, they have the lithium, they have all the raw materials they need right there. And so we're seeing this really amazing Chinese EV market come in and I thought I really understood it until you made a report, Justin, yesterday, where instead of Lucid, you're talking about XPeng. And I would love to hear more about, like, why, why, why you see XPeng as like the not necessarily the biggest Chinese EV pick, but one of your 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 most. Um, one of your big areas of focus for Chinese stocks going into 2022. So I'd love to get more in your perspective on XPeng, what uh, the Chinese EV market looks like moving forward, and just like your perspective in terms of uh, like, eh, what's the potential here on this stock? Take me, take me more through your research, my dude.
1: Yeah, totally. So it's interesting because we've talked about Lucid, we've talked about Rivian, and we've talked about Tesla. And we've even talked about x before, but primarily we've done it on U.S.-based companies because that's what people want to hear about. Those are the companies that's in the news, and we're trying to, you know, obviously satisfy um, the questions everyone has. So, you know, in addition to that, there, the U.S. is not the only market. So when you look at the evolution of China over the years, it's really interesting, and I'll tie this eventually <laughs> to electric vehicles. But. China obviously opened its doors not that long ago to Western trading, Western capitalism and, and ideas that historically they've been always inwards in. And so when they first opened up um, kind of at the, the turn of like the 90s and even into the 2000s, um, they were very behind from a, an economic perspective and from a world trade perspective. Um, the car market was already largely past them and they weren't going to lead that. And so since they've done a really good job at looking at other opportunities out there and seeing where they can capitalize on any, you know, value additive situations. And so tying this now to the electrical vehicle market, they saw this years ahead of the American markets. And so while Tesla and these companies, which are obviously American based, have been doing electric vehicles for a while, they haven't had the support of the government to the extent that Chinese companies have in China over the last few years. And so China has really been kind of on the forefront for subsidizing Chinese-based electric vehicle companies. And not because they're you know, trying to, <laughs> to save the world at all, but they see an opportunity to literally re- redefine who they are from an auto perspective. And so as the entire world starts to shift from combustion-based engines to electric vehicles, that's going to literally be a once-in-a-generation event where every single car eventually will be replaced on the road, planes, trains. The entire transportation system will eventually be replaced by this cleaner energy solution. And so China has seen this, and a company like Xpeng has been a really good beneficiary of their you know, friendliness towards the company over the last several years. And so they're still starting to ramp up production. They're still starting to build a lot of their facilities. But from what we've seen so far, they're really going to be you know, both in a position to deliver up to half a million cars per year relatively soon. And they have the support of the Chinese government, Chinese suppliers, Chinese supply chain behind them. So when you look at the electric vehicle market, yes, Tesla is important. Yes, Lucid's is important. So is Rivian. But you can't discount these Chinese companies that have the support of the government and literally millions and billions of dollars backing them. So Xpeng has already shown that they can innovate. They've shown that they can start scaling. They're, again, in the early stages, but they are a company that, if you want to play the EV trend, is going to have massive upside potential over the next decade.
0: And I love that, too. And I think one thing to keep in mind as well is that as you try to understand EV stocks audience, people keep thinking, oh, it's people just overvaluing them because they're, you know, going to save the planet or whatever. And it's not necessarily about that. It's also so much of the U.S. economy was built around building cars over the 20th century. And to build a combustion engine, you need several thousand moving parts manufactured essentially across the whole country. Like we had figured out a really robust system of transportation, manufacturing, and just, just a lot of specialized tools. That supply chain obviously got punched right in the face by lockdowns and COVID. And the very huge advantage of EV production is, yes, the materials are very expensive. Getting lithium and graphite is hard. But once you get around that difficulty, uh, an, electrical engi- an, an EV engine is very, very simple to produce. All, literally one moving part besides the wheels and you're golden, right? So rather than having to deal with the complexity of a supply chain, you have to deal with the pressure of very expensive um what is it called technology and very expensive raw materials that you eventually turn into a car that's the major attraction here as you see um traditional manufacturing kind of struggle during these new circumstances while these simple supply chain of evs ultimately uh is not necessarily winning out but becoming more attractive to investors which shows you that huge um valuation moving forward so something to keep in mind as people think about the technology and um examine things moving forward. At the same time, audience, uh, we're about halfway through or a little bit more than halfway through here. So one major thing I want to keep in mind here, y'all, is uh, uh, if you have any questions at all, if you have anything you want us to discuss, you've got voice chat here in Discord as well as just DMing DMing me directly. I want to make sure that the topics we focus on are uh, exactly what you want them to be. And I want to make sure that you are getting the information you need. So keep that in mind as well. As I move forward, you're going to be, you know, spamming that channel a little bit. So hit me up there. Uh, one thing, Justin, that I want to just kind of throw at you real quick is I got I did get a DM as this was starting. Uh, breaking news: the um, the uh, uh, the U.S. government is suing to block Nvidia's acquisition of Arm, a semiconductor chip design manufacturer. Nvidia stock hasn't really reacted to that. Like it, this is like up to the minute thing, but it's interesting how we're seeing a lot of antitrust uh, behavior coming out of the Biden administration. So just 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 a quick view here: is this something that like when you think of companies getting hit by these antitrust measures um nvidia is going to acquire this this chip designer in europe from softbank for something like 82 billion dollars right um and if it gets blocked it gets blocked whatever but is this one of those things that like would have? is this finally the thing that can finally pump the brakes in nvidia stock or is this something that just kind of happens sometimes and companies have to deal with
1: yeah i mean it's it's interesting right now because Exactly to your point, Um, them stepping in and and blocking an acquisition, especially from the Biden administration, is is not pro-business, and so it's definitely not advantageous. Having said that, I don't think this is going to be the catalyst that stops NVIDIA. What I do think is important to watch is, like, does this set the precedent for other acquisitions? Does this set the precedent for the DOJ to come in? And even not necessarily stop acquisitions, but break companies up. And so this has been over the head of Google and Apple and so many companies for so many years. And with, you know, clearly this, this breakup of, of large companies, especially like, not to segue this too much into crypto space, but the whole theme of decentralization, to me, this really signals more, is this going to be a a precedent now going forward for big tech, for big companies, trying to expand and essentially become monopolies. And so to answer your question, I don't think it affects NVIDIA stock in the long run. Realistically, this isn't going to be pivotal towards their business from what I understand about the acquisition. But to me, it's more so how does this affect the rest of the landscape? And that's something I think we're going to all need to pay attention to over the next several quarters.
0: Exactly, yeah, because it's one of those things where as we get more confidence, we think more about antitrust. Like, you see you see the government testing the waters here and you're wonder, are they going to go after Facebook next? Are they going to finally go after Google, Amazon, and or um, anyone else next? That sort of thing. And so that's something we're we're watching really closely. And it's it's really interesting in terms of when you think about short-term versus long-term. Like if Amazon spun AWS, it would be, you know, a negative in the very short term, but it would create a lot of shareholder value in the long term. I think I think one thing that would be amazing is if Google let YouTube go and let YouTube be the powerful tool it could be, but as it's kind of like under the thumb of the largest search engine in the world, it's all YouTube being the second largest search engine in the world, underneath Google, within the Google ecosystem doesn't make sense, but if they were an actual competitor to Google, that would be a very interesting and also potentially value-creating situation. And so that's the way I see it. Like, regulation's tough in the short term, but I think in the long term, a lot of these things can can tend towards value creation for stockholders, which is the only thing I really care about. So, yeah, you're right. It's not it's not pro-business, but in some cases it can be pro-shareholder. Um, and, and then as we think about this moving forward again, you, you mentioned decentralization as well. A lot of people are thinking about D, uh, DeFi. I'm really excited that we managed to almost get through this entire podcast without talking about crypto. Um, it's still been a little volatile along with the stock market, except for Solana, which <laughs> hashtag soul gang, go team, uh, doing well. But um, looking from your perspective, like how, how's crypto looking? in the broad sense like is is crypto going to keep getting hammered by this volatility with omicron same as a stock market or do you think we can finally break out of this little bull, uh this little bear trap and get back into the bull cycle we had for the rest of q4
1: yeah so crypto like obviously runs from what we've seen now in like waves of euphoria so they pick up sentiment everyone starts trading it more money piles in and it creates like this waterfall effect where the early traders attract the secondary traders into the third tranche and so on and so forth and then it cools off and either people continue pouring money in or there's a little bit of a a wane in terms of interest and so honestly it's anyone who tells you that crypto is going to go up tomorrow or it's going to go up in a month from now or a year from now is just guessing so we're not i'm not going to say you know i'm confident that this is going to only be short-lived or we're going to see this for the next few years from what we've seen is kind of from this cycle so far I wouldn't be surprised to see this just be a short-term low over the next month or two into the, into the new year. But for me to definitively say this right now, I think is just inappropriate. And I think a lot of people out there who are are saying they know are just honestly full of shit. Um, But that's from like the market's perspective, but the whole trend of like decentralization and like building all these different applications that I think fundamentally is not going away anytime soon and i know there's still a lot of skepticism to say oh these coins shouldn't be worth so much this and that you know the amount of money from an investing standpoint and the amount of talent from a building standpoint building out like what we'll call web 3 is so immense that i don't think people honestly realize how much is going on behind the scenes that isn't necessarily like built and usable by the general public today but I think, make no mistake, this, you know, trends in crypto, what coin will be, what company will be is is impossible to say who will be the, you know, the 10, 20, 30 winners. But the theme of decentralization and this building out the next layer of infrastructure, that without a doubt, you know, we're going to be in a bull market for that for the next 20, 30 years.
0: And that's the thing that excites me the most, too. Like, as somebody who's been watching Bitcoin and watching the crypto market evolve for the last, what, decade, the thing that genuinely excites me the most has only been something I've discovered in the past year, and that's been me learning about DAOs. And I think there's a lot of really strong potential for rewriting the code of how things are run via DAOs. And I'm very excited for these decentralized autonomous organizations to become kind of the mainstream as we move into Web3 and as we build out Web3 organizations. I'm doing a lot of research for hopefully a YouTube video coming down the pipe momentarily. But I mean, at the same time, I would love to convert Moby to a DAO um, in terms of how we organize ourselves. We can get into that later. But regardless, folks, thank you so much for being here with us today. Just so you know, this podcast was produced, hosted and voiced by me, Peter Starr. Um, Our chief analyst here today was Justin Kramer. At the same same time, if you have any other questions for us, hit us up in DMs or hit us up at hello, Mobi, hello at moby.co. If you want any other Moby stuff, we are posting regularly on YouTube as well. Hit us up at youtube.com C slash MobyInvest. We just posted a video today. would love it if you subscribed. We, we're very close to a lot of cool milestones on YouTube. We're growing really fast, and we'd love you to be a part of that. Regardless, folks, I really appreciate your time. And as always, I'd like to leave you with peace, love, and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much.